0: The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, church. Man, so glad that you're worshiping with us this morning. Glad that you're here. Excited to share with you this really rich text that we have this week my name is Paul and I'm one of the pastors and we've been in a series kind of journeying through the book of Mark going back to September. And we're kind of in the very center of the book. We're in chapter 9. I encourage you to turn your Bibles to chapter 9. We're going to start in verse 14. If you were here last week, we looked at a very well-known passage, the, the Transfiguration account, where Jesus goes to the top of Mount Hermon. He brings Peter, James, and John with him. It's kind of a, the, the transitional point of his ministry. Right before Jesus ascended the Mount of Transfiguration, he'd asked Simon Peter, Who do you say that I am? And and, and Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, and then Jesus predicted for the first time, he foretold of his, of his arrest and his, his crucifixion and his resurrection. And then right at that moment, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John to the top of the mountain. And before their very eyes, they see Jesus. As the humanity of Christ is peeled back, the miracle of the incarnation uh, kind of ceases, and the true nature of Christ was made known to these men on top of the mountain of Transfiguration. And the glory and the divinity of Christ shined out on these men. And and as they as they looked at the 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 glory of Jesus, uh, uh. Elijah and Moses were were talking to him as a representation of the law and the prophets. And this glory cloud enveloped the mountain. The voice of the Father spoke from the top of the mountain and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. An incredible, incredible encounter with King Jesus on the top of the mountain. And we learned last week that Jesus is the powerful King. He is glorious God. And he is the suffering servant who died in our place. Today as we get into our, our passage, we're, we're kind of at a pivotal point in the gospel of Mark. The structure of the book, up through the first seven and a half chapters, we've been asking the question, who is Jesus? And sort of like a diamond, with a multi-faceted diamond, that when you turn it, different aspects, different dimensions of the diamond glimmer in the sun, week after week, story after story, encounter after encounter, through the first seven and a half chapters of Mark, we've seen different dimensions of Jesus as this question, who is Jesus, is answered in new and fresh ways, and our vision of Christ has been expanding for seven and a half chapters and in the middle of chapter eight jesus asks this question who do who do people say that i am and that disciples say oh you're john the baptist you're elijah you're one of the prophets and then he he switches it and it goes from a ministry to the crowds it goes from the question of who is jesus to then jesus looks at peter he says but who do you say that i am and as disciples of jesus as men and women today sitting under the word of god as we read the gospel of mark that's a question that's been posed to us today As we gather in this place, the question we are called to answer is, who do you, who do I, who do we say that Jesus is? And the the ministry to the crowds ceases, and now the focus of Jesus is on his disciples. And for the next two chapters, chapter 9 and 10, there are these moments where Jesus is intentionally instructing his disciples on key things. He instructs them on the humble service rather than seeking status in his kingdom. He instructs them on focusing on their task and leaving the rest to God. He focuses on the seriousness of sin, on marriage and divorce, on the value of children in his kingdom. He talks about the cost and the reward of following him. He talks about the humble nature of those in the kingdom. But here today in our text, he begins his instruction of his disciples, the the shifting in the book, he instructs them on faith. He speaks to his disciples today, About faith, we need to pay special attention, especially to verses 23 and 24 in our passage today. When all is said and done, Jesus looks at this man who has an afflicted son and he says, If you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Father, would you meet us today in this place as we look at this text, this rich passage? God, would you meet us in this place as we kind of journey through this story? God, as we glimpse, glimpse upon who you are, upon your character, God, as we wrestle with what is this faith you have called us to, God, would you make yourself known to us? God, would you embolden our faith? God, would you lift our eyes up from the mountains in our midst and, and, and allow us to focus on you, the mountain mover? God, we love you. Reveal yourself to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Today I don't actually have an outline. I was I was telling the guys in the booth before the service I decided just to let the story speak for itself and so there's no points in my sermon to which someone said, so your sermon has no point? It's like no there's not no points in my sermon. There's no point just stop talking. Just it's gonna be good. We're just gonna let the story speak for itself. So as I was reading this passage, and we're kind of in this dialogue about mountains, as is, is you know, uh, I'm a guy who loves the mountains. I love to backpack. I love to hike. And I was remembering this story this week, which is kind of a reflective of a thousand stories of me backpacking in Montana and Idaho's Selway Bitterroot Wilderness Area. A number of years ago, I took a bunch of guys backpacking, and we were going to hike back to this mountain called Sky Pilot, which is right on the Montana and Idaho border. We wanted to ascend this summit. I, I love to summit mountains. And so we were hiking back. It took us three or four days to get to the point where we wanted to ascend. But we were down in these deep little canyons. We had to hike into Idaho and we're in these canyons and there's all this buck brush and trees. And, and it's so hard to know where you're going. Oftentimes there was trail, but when, when we got closer to the mountain that we wanted to ascend, the trail disappeared and we had to kind of start bushwhacking it and figuring out our way. And as we're walking, it's easy to get turned around. And we finally get up to this sort of saddle where the, where the trees clear a little bit. And I'm trying to figure out where I am. And I see this mountain. and I'm like, oh, that's... That's Sky Pilot right there. Yes. And my brother in law like, No, no, I don't think that's Sky Pilot. I think that's Sky Pilot over there. I'm like, No, no, no. That, that's Sky Pilot. He's like, No, no, no. I, I think maybe this is. But we didn't know. We were confused. We'd been in the, in the, in the weeds and in the bushes. We hadn't seen where we were going. We kind of got turned around. We were lost a bit. And so what we do is we take out a map, a topographical map, and I take out my compass. And the compass, no matter where you are, that compass points to true north. And so you, you take out your map and you put your compass on the map, and then you align your your map with True North, with True North on the map, and you're like, okay, boom, that's True North. That mountain is, oh, it's that. Russ, you were right, that's Sky Pilot. It's this mountain over here. I was wrong all along. And it was this, uh, this long journey that led us to this place, and it was confusing. But oftentimes, as I think about life and our journeys in life, we... We often find ourselves sort of lost in the weeds and down in the valleys and in the low places. Now, eventually, we climbed Sky Pilot. We got to the top, and the top of the mountain was about as big as this rug right here. It was maybe this big. It was a little over 9,000 feet tall, and we could see a a lot of directions. It was amazing, but it was teeny. And as I think about all the hours that we hiked and all the land that we covered, I think about the land that we stood on on that mountain and the time that we spent on that mountain. The mountaintop experience was like 1% of our overall experience. And up on top of the mountain, by the way, if you've ever been to a mountain, you get up above the tree line, there's no growth, it's just rocks and and lichen. And if you look down in the valleys that are filled with brush, that's where everything's green, that's where growth happens. What what an analogy for what our life is like. Did you know that 99.9% of our life is not mountaintop? 99.9% of the life that you and I live, the topography is not mountaintop. And the thing about being in the valley is you don't have perspective like you do on the mountain. The mountaintops are great. They give us perspective. They're invigorating. But in life, the majority of our life is lived in the valley. We don't have perspective. We have to live in a sense of dependency on the map, on the compass, on the word of God, on the spirit of God to guide us. And we have to figure it out before. I know I've said it in the past, and someone said this to me many years ago when I first got into ministry. This gentleman said to me that that every human being at any given moment is in one of three places. They're either just heading into a valley experience, they're in the middle of a valley experience, or they're just coming out of a valley experience. You might want to say that maybe the fourth one is you get the mountaintop experiences for 0.1% of your time. But for the vast majority of us this morning, as we gather in this place, you're in one of those three spots. The mountaintops can be invigorating. The reality is it is in the valleys of life where we learn to live by faith. We learn to look to God's word, we learn to be led by God's spirit, we learn to live by faith. The scriptures are filled with instructions for what a life of faith is to look like. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 5, he says that we are to walk by faith and not by sight. As Paul speaks to the church in Galatia, he says that a person is justified through faith in Jesus Christ, and Paul said of himself, the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. The author of Hebrews said, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So the life of the Christian, for those of us gathered in this place this morning seeking to live a life of faith, uh, we, we, we live and we believe and our life is led by faith. I heard a preacher say this week that, that by faith we believe in the things we cannot see. According to Hebrews one, that's 11, 1, that's true. As Christians, we trust in a God we have not seen. We trust in a Christ we have not seen. We trust in a spirit we have not seen. We we trust in a death and resurrection we have not seen. We trust in a justification we have not seen. We look to a fulfillment in eternal heaven that we have yet to see. Peter reminds the believer in 1 Peter 1, he says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Which means that our faith, though we, we, faith is believing in the things we cannot see, our faith is not a blind faith. Our faith is based on evidence, it's grounded in Scripture, the living Word of God. It's rooted and grounded in history. We are not following cleverly devised myths, it's grounded in truth. And now, the Word of truth is a treasure for every believer. And last week, if you were here, we, we, we skipped ahead to 2 Peter. And we read what Peter had to say about, about the prophetic word. Now, Peter was on Transfiguration Mount with Jesus, the previous text we just preached. On his face before a holy God, he saw the humanity of Jesus peeled back. He saw the divinity of Christ wash over him with blinding light. He saw Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets, Christ, the fulfillment of all of that. He heard the voice of God from the glory cloud saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. He had that incredible encounter with the living God on top of the mountain. And yet Peter says to us, we have the prophetic word which is more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in a dark place. Peter said that more credible, more divine, more miraculous than his encounter with jesus on the top of the mountain is the fact that we have the living word of god which is like a light shining for us as we walk through the valleys of life and as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death we have the word of truth to light the way and so this morning as we settle here into mark chapter 9 verses 14 through 29 as we we come down off transfiguration mount with james john and peter we're invited to learn this important lesson from jesus we were invited to sit under his instruction on faith. Turn with me to Mark 14. Mark 9, verse 14. And when they had come to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed. And they ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Let's, let's pause there for a second. From the mountaintop of glory, Jesus comes down into a religious and theological argument between the disciples and some of the scribes. It comes down to some people squabbling. The scribes were a part of the religious establishment that had set their eyes against Jesus. It really began from the very beginning of the ministry of Jesus, going back to the beginning parts of Mark, but sort of the the hatred for the religious folks against Jesus was galvanized in Mark 3, verse 6, where Jesus was in the synagogue in Capernaum, and a man with a withered hand was in there, and Jesus dared to heal the man with a withered hand, violating in the scribes' and Pharisees' mind the religious law. And so we read in Mark 3, verse 6, that the Pharisees went out and they immediately held counsel with the Herodians against Jesus how to destroy him. And so evidently with Jesus gone up on the mountain for for a handful of days with Peter, James, and John, the other nine disciples were left back below at the base of Mount Hermon and they're arguing with the scribes, likely, about some sort of a theological issue, which is what they always argued about. And as the religious people are, are going at it with one another, they're at each other's throats, they're squabbling, they're, they're arguing, they're pointing fingers. There is a man in their midst who is in tremendous need. He's brought his son, and he's in desperate need of God's help, and yet the people who claim to represent God are too busy fighting with each other to help this man. What a horrible reality. What a sad picture, and I think it's all too familiar today. As religious people fight against one another, desperate people in search for God have no place to find him because the people who claim to represent him are inward-focused and going at each other. Christians argue when churches split and the unbelieving world turns away from Jesus and turns to other things. How sad. And in this, ta- this text, we see in verse 17, a father who is in agony. And so after Jesus asks what the argument is about, we pick up in verse 17, Someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you. For he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. Perhaps the argument between the scribes and the disciples was about this guy. Maybe he came in their midst, and he said, My son is in desperate need of healing. The the disciples put their hand at healing the, the boy, and they couldn't. Maybe the scribes tried their prescription for healing, and they didn't bring any deliverance, and so they're squabbling with one another why both of them were so impotent to do anything meaningful for this man. Matthew tells us that when Jesus shows up on the scene, the man kneels before Jesus in humble submission. Luke's account records what the father says to Jesus in that moment. He says, teacher, I beg you to look at my son for he's my only child. And as I look at this scene, I see a parent who is desperate to find relief for his afflicted son. Any parent in this room can understand this parent's agony. Whether it's seeing your son or daughter cry as they they clasp a, a skinned knee after falling off the bike, or it's watching one of your teenage kids sob over a broken heart, or it's seeing your kids suffer in ways and you feel so hopeless and helpless and powerless. you do anything to take their pain away. You just can't. So you have to watch your kids suffer. It's, it's awful. Many of you have been here. The hopelessness of this man was rooted in the fact that he had put his hand to helping his son. He tried everything. He had exhausted all avenues, and yet he was, he was absolutely powerless. He had nothing of significance to offer his son that would bring relief. Instead, he tells us in verse 22, not only is he powerless, he has to watch as this demon, as this demon casts his son into fire and into water, as he watches this demon, this minion of Satan, seek to destroy his son. What an awful thing for this dad to have to see. And as we imagine this scene, it's a picture of a desperate, desperate parent. He's exhausted all of his resources. He's empty-handed. He's come to the end of himself. He has this fleeting hope that this Messiah, this healer, this man, this Jesus he had somehow heard of might be the last hope for his son. And we don't know the backstory. Somehow this father had heard of Jesus, somehow he'd taken his son and traveled to where he thought Jesus would be. He, he arrived and Jesus was gone, but his disciples were there and there were some scribes there, and they could do nothing and this dad is desperate. He's desperately looking for Jesus, and Jesus comes off the mountain. And this man, because he's got nothing else at this point, all he has is this little teeny bit of struggling faith And for this father, it's not a faith of luxury, it's a faith of necessity, because he has nothing else. There's nowhere else for him to turn, and so Jesus looks upon this father's desperate plea, and he's moved with compassion for the dad, and he's moved with anger and indignation for those disciples and those Pharisees who are so impotent to do anything to help this man. The scribes have been of no use, his own disciples have been of no help to this man, and Jesus looks upon this man and his hopeless, helpless, agonizing son, and he looks upon his disciples and he looks upon the scribes and he is just exasperated. Mark records the exasperated groanings of Jesus in verse 19. He answered them, Oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. In other words, as Jesus looks out at the crowd, filled with both his disciples and his opponents and observers. All of them are part of this faithful, faithless generation. He says, you disciples, you're just like the rest of them. How long am I to, am I to be with you? Are you ever going to learn a faithless generation? And Jesus, he looks at this dad and his heart is broken for him. He looks at this boy who's been afflicted since childhood and his heart is broken for him. And he diagnoses the fundamental problem with the generation that's present. And in so doing, he diagnoses the fundamental problem with any generation. The problem is this problem of faith. It's a problem of faith, the fundamental problem that's afflicting all involved, whether it's the opponents of Jesus, whether it's the oppressed uh, uh, or the, the disciples, is this issue of faithlessness. This father is surrounded by a bunch of people, Who are powerless to offer any help to his son. And this dad is looking to Jesus. And he has a mustard seed size of faith. Verse 20. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit, the evil spirit, saw Jesus, saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell to the ground and he rolled around foaming at the mouth. What an awful picture. What a horrifying description. This evil spirit throws this boy on the ground. He's convulsing. He's rolling about. He's foaming at the mouth. His body is rigid. This little boy, or maybe he was an older boy, but we don't know how old he was. He could have been an adult son for all we know. He was deeply deeply affected. This this demon, this minion of Satan, had stripped this boy of his ability to speak, of his ability to hear. It had seized his body. It had thrown him on the ground. His mouth is foaming. His body is rigid. His teeth are grinding. And as this horror unfolds, we see the motivation of Satan. We see the motivation of the enemy. This demon is seeking to cast this boy into open fire and into water. He's seeking to destroy this boy. He is hell-bent on destroying the image of God in this boy. That's what, the, that's what Satan does. And if you look at the culture wars in the world today, it is, a, it, is a, it is an attack at the very identity of what it means for us to be human and what it means for us to be made in the image of God. And that's the way Satan operates And whether this boy had epilepsy and the demon had saw an afflicted, weak boy who was vulnerable and then he attacked this afflicted, weak boy and on top of epilepsy just sought to further destroy him or whether all the symptoms we read are just simply caused from demonic possession, either or, the motive of the enemy is just the same. He wants to destroy the imago Dei in this boy. He wants to destroy the image of God in this boy. And as readers, we are meant to to, to watch and to see and to... And have our hearts broken at this demonic horror. Can you see that boy on the ground? Can you see him there? Tortured and tormented, grinding his teeth and foaming in his mouth, burn scars and scrapes and bruises mark his body from being thrown violently to the ground and violently into fires over the course of his life. And behind it all as this boy is imprisoned by an evil spirit. Behind these desperate eyes, there is a boy that is trapped and he's looking out desperately begging for deliverance. But this evil spirit is seeking to destroy this boy bit by bit. So helpless and hopeless, this father falls to his knees as his son ravages under the affliction of this demonic oppression. The dad scoops his son up in his arms like he has a thousand times. Then he might not bite his tongue, bite his cheeks, choke on his own foam, And together they look up at Jesus, absolutely powerless and desperate. Verse 21. Jesus asks the Father, how long has this been happening to him? The Father says, from childhood. And it's often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, Jesus, have compassion on us. Help us. I've meditated on these verses this week. And as we sat on Tuesday as a sermon development team, we talked about this. Why did Jesus ask this question? This is Jesus. He knows full well how long this has been happening to this boy. How long has this been happening to him? Jesus knows full well. So if he knows the answer to the question, why does he ask it? I think the answer to that question is found in the father's response to Jesus. The father says to Jesus, have compassion on us. And the reason why Jesus is asking the question is because he is operating in compassion for this afflicted family. Jesus doesn't impersonally diagnose the disease from a distance, but he draws near to this man and his son because he has compassion on them. I'm reminded of the way David depicts the good shepherd in Psalm 23. He says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. The heart of the good shepherd is to walk with his people through their darkest valleys. And as this dad is down in the shadow of Mount Hermon, he's holding his son there in the darkest of valleys, and Jesus doesn't just stand back impersonally and observe the suffering of his dad and his son. He enters into their pain. He walks in the valley of the shadow of death with his father and his son. He has compassion on them. That word compassion is a Greek word I've shared before. It's my. And the root word is splachnizomai, which is, means our bowels. And the picture here is that Jesus is moved with compassion, splachnizomai. The very core, the very heart, the very gut of Jesus is tortured. It's tormented for the loss and for the suffering that he's observing when he looks at this father and his son. Jesus is entering this man's pain. What a picture for those of us here today who are in Christ. One of my favorite books I've shared with you in the past is a book called The Art of Pastoring, written by David Hansen. And the thesis of that book, David Hanson says, is that we as ambassadors of Christ, as missionaries, as, as ministers of the gospel, as Christians, we are to be parables of Jesus to the world around us. And he defines a parable as a known thing that illustrates an unknown thing to somebody. And so for you and me that are in Christ, those of us that have been born again, and we have the spirit of the living God alive in us, the power of God in us, you are the closest thing to Jesus some of your neighbors know. You are a parable of Jesus to your spouse who doesn't know Christ. You are a parable of Jesus to your grandkids, to your kids, to your neighbors, to your classmates, to your friends, to your teachers, to your coworkers. And if God, by His Spirit, gives us His eyes to see the world the way He sees the world, and if, and if we sense this block needs in mind, if our heart is broken for the things that break, God, break God's heart, just like Jesus, we will willingly step into the pain of others to minister the gospel to them, in their times of greatest need. And here we get to the very centerpiece of the passage, the verses I read at the beginning, verses 23 and 24. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And immediately the father of the child cried out. And he said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Those words of Jesus in verse 23 quite possibly are some of the most perverted, or quite possibly that might be a verse that has been most perverted among people who have seeked to pervert the words of Jesus. This, this verse has been twisted and distorted to mean all sorts of things that it does not mean. Jesus says, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. And people have perverted this text to mean all sorts of things They they have not They have not represented this text as as what it's intended to be. Jesus is talking about a powerful Christian faith that is rooted in the person and in the work of Jesus. But people have taken this verse and have perverted it. False teachers, false gospels, and they've treated it as a talisman for magic, to quote uh, R.C. Sproul. Verse 23 has been used to reduce faith to to someone's internal capacity to muster up some sort of mystical, mysterious faith that can somehow be wielded like magic. This is a perversion of the text. It's a heresy. It's been called many things. Most recently, it's often called the Word of Faith movement or the Name It Claim It movement or the Force of Faith. It's a perversion of Scripture. It demotes God and it exalts man. And the people that believe this, this heresy are essentially listening to the very lies of Satan that he spoke over Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden Genesis 3.6 when he said, you can be like God. The truth is the source of our belief, the source of our faith does not lie in some mystical, magical, internal power that we can muster up. If you're like me, so much of the time when I've heard this verse quoted throughout the course of my Christian life, all things are possible for he who believes. I've tended in my, in my limited thinking to reduce this verse to somehow my own ability to muster up belief. As if the power to do anything lies within myself. And so what, I, what I've tended to do in, in, in faithless seasons of my life, God has taught me over the years, but there's been seasons in my life where when, I, when I've looked at this verse and I, then I've, I've lifted my eyes up and I've looked at the mountains that are standing in the way in my life and I say, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe, I believe. And I try to muster up some sort of weird internal strength that's devoid of the power of God. And I try to muster up enough belief to move a mountain. And my heart might even be in the right place. I might see a mountain that breaks my heart. I might see an affliction that I want to see relieved. I might see a problem where where I want to see intervention. But rather than look to the one who has the power to do anything about it, uh, if we look at this verse and we apply it wrongly, we think it's about conjuring up some sort of weird, mysterious internal force of faith, and it's just garbage. That's not what Jesus is saying here. We get caught looking at the mountains, and we forget to look to the mountain mover. But listen, our hope cannot be in the mountains moving, Our hope must be in the mountain mover. Matthew's account of this, as Jesus is teaching his disciples at the end of the encounter with the man after the boy is delivered, as Jesus pulls his disciples aside in Matthew uh, chapter 9, he says, um, as he's teaching on faith, Jesus says, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. When Jesus was teaching his disciples this important lesson on faith, the power in this passage is not in the person praying, but in the powerful God to whom they pray. I think you should write that down. The power in this passage is not in the person praying, but in the powerful God to whom we pray. The point here is a call to faith. It's a little bit of struggling faith as modeled by this dad. It's a mustard seed size of faith that is rooted in God and in his God's power. This faith that Jesus calls his disciples to is not some mysterious inner power to speak to a mountain and make it move like we're some form of Christian David Copperfield. This is a call to faith in the mountain mover. The reason the previous passage has us on top of a mountain before we descend into this horrible scene in the valley is so that we might see Christ in all of his glory and in all of his power and in all his divinity. He is the powerful one. He is King Jesus, not me. Our faith is in him. He is the one who has created all things, not me. Our faith is in the one who was before all things, who holds all things together, who is the head of the church. Our faith is in an omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent God who has reconciled all things to himself through the cross, He's overcome sin and death. He's secured eternal life for all who believe. When Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, he is saying all things are possible for the one who believes in the one who can do all things. In other words, our hope cannot be in the mountains moving, but in the mountain mover. And the response of the dad is awesome. Perhaps the most honest words in all of Scripture, perhaps the most vulnerable and real words in all of the New Testament, I believe Help my unbelief. No fake spiritual masks for this dad. He's been through way too much to play the religious game. He's got this small portion, this mustard seed-sized portion of struggling faith, and he's got this nagging, this nagging portion of unbelief. And rather than play games with Jesus and put on a spiritual mask to try to impress the rabbi, he just, in utter transparency, calls it as it is. I believe... You know what I've been through with this kid? You know how many thousands of hours I've sat on my knees in the dirt by my son as he's been ravaged, as his teeth are gnashing, as foam is coming out of his mouth, as he's been seized, as he's been thrown into fire. You know how many millions of prayers I have prayed that this would no longer befall my son? I believe that you can do something, but God, you've got to help my unbelief, because I have watched him suffer far too long. This was a real faith that was honest about its weaknesses. It was a faith that was directed toward the power of Jesus and not the power of this man's faith. Because this man's faith did not have power. It was a weak faith. How encouraging for those of us gathered here today that we don't have to be fake with God. He's not interested in our Christian ease or our Christian cliches. He wants to know the authentic reality of our heart when we come before him. God, I believe. But if I'm honest right now, I'm struggling. Father, help my unbelief. Have you ever prayed a prayer like this, Dad, in your life? Maybe you're in a season right now where you're praying a prayer like this. I believe. But when I watch the evening news and I see the wheels coming off our world, God, I struggle to believe sometimes, if I'm honest. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Doesn't shame the guy. Doesn't pull his hand of healing back from his son. He doesn't rebuke the guy. Look at verse 25 and 26. When Jesus saw the crowd come running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he said, to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Verse 26. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out. And the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said he's dead. This demon was not going to come out without a fight. And so with one final shriek of horror and one final seizure, the boy was violently shaken. He was thrown to the ground and all those present thought for sure that he was dead. The crowd watched in horror as the boy lay motionless in there, whispering to one another. They came to Jesus to provide healing, but I think he killed him. But then verse 27. Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. What a scene i mean what a scene can you imagine watching this unfold after years of hopeless horror for this father and this son after this heart-stopping moment where the boy is thrown violently as a corpse to the ground everyone thinks he's dead jesus reaches down and he grabs his cold stiff hand and like that life enters the boy and in a minute the imago day the image of god was restored in the boy and satan was defeated Luke's Gospel tells us that Jesus gave the boy back to his father and all were astonished at the majesty of God. The resurrection language here, I believe, is intentional. The boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said he is dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. By encountering Jesus, this boy went from hopeless and helpless, from tormented and tortured, from the appearance of death, to being lifted up by Jesus, to rising, Restored to new life, whole and healed. And I don't think it's a mistake that we see this contrast between the mountain experience and the valley experience. I think intentionally, when Mark was writing this, he was creating this, this one-for-one contrast between the mountain experience and the valley experience. It's a mountain, it's a valley. It's ascending the mountain, it's descending into the valley. It's, it's, God, uh, it's God's son in all his glory. It's a tortured son in all his afflictions. It's the glory of God, it's the agony and the defeat that, that, that toils around Satan. And here we see another contrast, whereas this father brings his afflicted son for deliverance, God the Father will take his holy, sinless Son and he will deliver him to the authorities where he will be afflicted for you and for me. I think there's a purposeful contrasting between the mountain and the valley that go together. And this is what happens, by the way, to anyone who encounters Jesus in faith, this going from death to life thing. This is the language the New Testament writers use. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, he says, but God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love with which he loved us, even when you and I were dead, even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. For those of us that come to faith in Christ, we're like this boy. We are as dead men and dead women because our sin kills us. The wages of sin is death. But when we encounter Christ with believing faith, he grabs our hand, he pulls us into life, and we are born again, restored, forgiven, redeemed, renewed. Praise God. But our passage doesn't end there. We've got two more verses. Look at these last two verses with me. Verses 28 and 29. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You got to remember what took place back in Mark chapter 6. Do you remember Mark chapter 6? Jesus sent out his disciples. Mark 6, beginning in verse 7, Jesus called the twelve and began to send them out two by two, and he gave them authority over unclean spirits. Look at verse 12. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. So these disciples have had experience casting out demons. Christ gave them the power and the authority to do so. So what happened here? Why couldn't they cast out the demon from this boy? Listen to Kent Hughes talk about it this week, and he said, During those days that Jesus was on top of the mountain with Peter, James, and John, the nine disciples that were left, they'd they'd gone about their work. They were likely casting out demons. They were likely preaching the word, calling people to repent, healing the sick. But when they came to this particularly stubborn demon inside this boy, they were powerless. They tried to cast out the demon. They failed. Another disciple tried. That disciple failed. Another disciple tried. That disciple failed. They went back. They tried again and tried again and tried again, but nothing worked. Why? Here's how Kent puts it. He says, The answer is, they were self-deceived into somehow thinking that the gift they had received for exorcism was under their own control and could be exercised at will. Thus, they did not think to pray. They forgot that there had to be a radical dependence in God's power. There had to be a radical dependence if God's power was to course through their lives. Jesus was teaching the disciples in this moment that the faith that brings power is a faith that prays. The demon would have been long gone if the disciples had given themselves to believing prayer. R.C. Sproul puts it this way, he says, The strength of our faith and prayers cannot be put on autopilot. We daily walk in dependence. The reservoir of faith isn't enough. We need a fresh feeling that comes from falling to our knees and turning our face heavenward and receiving power from the one who moves mountains. Our hope is not in the mountains moving, but in the mountain mover. Put another way, the power of our faith is not in our desire or our power to see a mountain moved. The power of our faith is in the one who moves mountains. So Jesus tells his disciples power comes through prayer. Power on earth comes through a praying faith in our great Christ. I've often heard prayer described as a declaration of dependence on God. We don't do this thing alone. Prayer is falling to our knees. It's upturning our hands and recognizing that he is the one who has the power, not me. One of the really cool things that's happening right now at Heritage is there's a group of guys that have been gathering on Wednesday mornings at the Hub from 8.30 to 9.30. Jed Morgan has been leading this and a handful of other guys have been showing up. And we don't have an agenda. We show up with our Bibles and a journal and we spend an hour praying together every week. It's been going on for a couple of months. Men, if you're around on Wednesday morning at 8.30 and you can join us at the Hub, I would love to have you join us. If you work on Wednesday morning... But at 8.30, you could put a reminder on your phone to join us in prayer from your office or from your work vehicle or from wherever you Maybe I'd encourage you to join us. There's something beautiful that happens when, when anybody gathers around and, and humbles themselves in prayer. But I, I think it's a super beautiful thing when I see men of God on their knees before a holy God calling out on the mountain mover to move mountains. It's amazing. Believing prayer is looking to heaven with utter submission. It's declaring our full dependence on the powerful one. It's entrusting our requests to him in humility. It's trusting that he will do as he pleases for our good. And we understand that in praying to the mountain mover who knows all things, who is infinite, we understand that as finite, weak people who are praying to an infinite, all powerful God, that the things that we think we desire, the prayers that we offer up, we offer up in humility because that might not be His will. A very simple, helpful passage for me when it comes to prayer my whole life has been Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. If you go to Matthew or Mark chapter 14, Verses 34, 35, and 36. This is that right before Jesus is going to be arrested, he's in agony because he knows what awaits him. He knows the agony of the cross is in his immediate future. He takes Peter, James, and John, the same three guys that saw his glory on the top of Transfiguration Mount, and he goes into the garden deeper, and and he says to his friends, My soul is so sorrowful. Even to death, remain here and watch. Then Mark tells us that going a little further, Jesus fell to the ground, and he prayed that if it were possible... The hour might pass from him. We see the humanity of Jesus here. Verse 36 of Mark 14. This is what's really helpful for me. The prayer of Jesus. He said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. I think if we look to this prayer of Jesus, we see just a simple framework for how we can think about what our prayer life should look like. God, you have all the power. All things are possible. God, you alone are omnipotent. Our prayer begins in humble submission to the all-powerful one, to the mountain mover. Hear my request. Jesus says, remove this cup. We say, God, there's a mountain. I'm asking you to move it, if it's your will. That's the third part. I trust in your perfect will, God. Not what I will, but what you will. This is what Jesus has modeled for us. God, you have the power. God, hear my request. And yet... Regardless of the outcome, I trust in your perfect will. Our hope is not that the mountains will be moved, but our hope is in the mountain mover. Now listen, I'm not sure where you are today. On the journey, maybe you're down in the sticks, you need a map and a compass and you're so lost, you're just like, I just need to figure out who God is and where I am. Maybe you're on the top of a mountain, praise God, enjoy the view. Maybe you're heading into in the middle of or just coming out of a valley. Maybe for you, is as you, as you turn your face to God and you say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Maybe the help my unbelief part is informed by any number of things. Maybe for you it's spiritual doubt. As stories of deconversion and exvangelicalism evangelicalism sweep across the church landscape, perhaps you're worried, you're afraid, you have spiritual doubt, you're trying to figure, God, are you real? Maybe for you it's fear as you watch the world spiral out of control. You see the threat of nuclear war, Eastern Europe, a global war, you don't know what the future holds. You're afraid for your family. You're afraid for your kids. You're afraid for the economy. You're fearful. Maybe for you, it's a dying marriage. Maybe for you, it's a failing body. Maybe for you, it's a wayward soul, someone you love who has just turned away and walked away from the faith. Maybe for you, it's a hardened and unbelieving mission field and the gospel seeds filled. It seem like they just fall on hard soil again and again and again. Maybe for you, it's a financial crisis. Maybe for you, it's a dark valley of depression. I don't know what's causing you to say, help my unbelief, but you can say it to him. He knows. And maybe as you look out at this spiritual doubt or this fear or this dying marriage or this failing body or this wayward soul or this hardened and unbelieving mission field, maybe as you look at this financial crisis and this dark valley of depression, it is an immovable mountain in your way. Well, the power was never yours to move a mountain in the first place. Our hope is not in our ability to move the mountain. Our hope is in the mountain mover. That's the power of prayer is in Him. Father, I recognize that in this church, in this congregation right now, there are a thousand, there are a thousand things and more than a thousand things that are going on in the lives of the men and women of our church. God, I know every person in this room can identify with a season of life or a moment of life where they have looked to you, God, and they have said, I believe, help my unbelief. God, many of us here today, as we look at the landscape of our life, all we see is mountains that seem immovable. God, would you allow us, would you encourage us, would you, would you move and work within us to take our eyes off these mountains and fix our eyes on you, the mountain mover, God? May our hope be rooted in you. You are a God who causes all things to work together for the good of those who love you and are called according to your purposes. God, no matter what it is we may be experiencing in our life today, You are sovereign over it. You're at work in it. And so God, hear our prayer. God, we believe. Help our unbelief. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, at church, week in and week out, my job for 20 plus years has been to be the guy that stands up here. and. And engage in this one way communication where I just speak, I try to speak forth the words of God from his word and you sit in in rows and you listen and there's a place and a time for that, to, to sit under the preached word, corporate worship but I want you right now, not figuratively literally, is turn to your left and turn to your right, please right now, look to your left and look to your right, look at the people around you maybe you came with the person to your left or your right, maybe you didn't, but I want you to look around we are the family of God and it's much easier for us just to stay in our little bubbles, especially you introverts, you're, you're, you're having a panic attack right now because you know I'm going to make you talk to someone next to you. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, introverts, love you. Uh, listen, we're, we're the family of God. And, and we're, we're not meant to pray in isolation. We're meant to pray in community. And so this is all I'm asking. I'm not putting any pressure on you. Don't lie to me right now. How many of you in this room at any point in your life have said, God, I believe, help my unbelief? Raise your hand, just raise your hand. Look around, please. Let's look around. You're not alone, right? We journey toward Jesus together as a community. And I'm here's what I'm asking you to do today. You don't have to if it makes you uncomfortable. We're going to sing a couple worship songs, and you can just engage in the musical worship. You can sing the lyrics as a prayer unto God. That's entirely perfect. That's entirely fine. But also, I've asked our elders and our pastors to scatter around the room also. But I don't want you to come just to elders and pastors. I want you to pray with a person to your left and to your right, whether you know them or not. We're the family of God. And so over the next few minutes, we're going to sing some songs, and we're going to lift our hearts and our minds to God in prayer and in worship. And I would encourage you, if you feel comfortable, over the music is to take a few steps to your left or a few steps to your right, put an arm around your brother or your sister and say, how can I pray for you? And bring those prayer requests before God. And together as the family, say, God, we believe. Help our unbelief. Amen.